My name is Janet Fraser and I'm a volunteer with the Feminist Legal Clinic in Exile. Our principal solicitor, Anna Kerr, is doing tech tonight with Kate Williamson, so thanks to those women. I live and work on Darug and Gandangaranara outside of Sydney. Wherever you're coming from this evening, we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging in Aboriginal nations across this continent. Tonight we'll be dealing with Article 6, Political Participation. There are opportunities and protections that were specifically created to help women achieve equal status with men, such as participation quotas. These opportunities and protections should apply only to persons of the female sex and shall not include men who claim to have female gender identities. Our three speakers are Michelle Uriaro, Caroline Norma and Virginia Mansell-Lees. Caroline Norma lectures at RMIT University in Melbourne and has faced harassment from university colleagues for having gender critical views. She has written media pieces against the political effects of transgenderism, including on the ability of the progressive left to organize. She has lived in Japan for the past three years and collaborates with sisters in Tokyo to resist genderist lobbying in the country. She is a member of the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women Australia and researches wartime comfort women issues. Lives on Dudaroa country. She lectures at La Trobe University at the Albury Wodonga campus in social work and social policy. She faced significant bullying from colleagues as a petition was taken up against her because she spoke at a gender critical event put on by the Women's Guild in Melbourne. This led to union colleagues, including the petitioners, seeking to have her thrown out of the union, as well as positions held within the union. She continues to work politically and is the convener of the Coalition of Activist Lesbians and works to ensure lesbians understand the erasure of women in all forms. Michelle Uriaro is a solo homeschooling mum living on Gunditjmara country. Born and bred in Napier, New Zealand, Michelle has been living in Australia now for almost 28 years. We are grateful. She has worked in corporate for most of her life until having her child 13 years ago. Michelle is a founding member of Manawahine Korero and Women's Action Group Southwest Victoria. Her introduction to the gender identity movement happened while studying a uni course on Aboriginal Australia four years ago. Wholly unenthusiastic about the idea of the gender bred person resource material before her, Michelle decided to educate herself on this foreign ideology. As a result, Michelle is very pleased to be speaking tonight. So I will start with you, Virginia. Virginia, would you like to introduce yourself a bit further and give us some details of your involvement in advocating for women's sex-based rights? As you know, my name is Virginia. Um, I live in Beechworth in North East Victoria, so a very small uh, town and have been living in this town for about 22 years. I think my activism goes back many years and much of my activism was about rights for women uh, when I lived certainly in remote areas of Queensland where really basic rights were always deemed to be something different or extra. Uh, rather than actually being the rights that everyone uh, needed to enjoy. When I look back on those times, I think what I learned from being an activist in those times was that the work is never done. There's always something else that we need to actually uh, understand and think about. I grew up, uh, I think, a lot politically and emotionally uh, and became a feminist. And I think that is what sustains me today, to know that uh, I have a feminist analysis of what's going on and I'm not actually going to be then just really pigeonholed into being old or a lesbian or whatever anyone likes to claim that I can have an analysis of what happens. But that didn't come easily. That came as a result of a lot of the work that I did. I lived and worked in Mount Isa, uh, which was, you know, sort of like a, the end of the road type town, uh, vibrant in some ways, but a uh, huge amount of violence and certainly very negative um, uh, opinion of women, probably seven men per one woman. Uh, so, you know, there were all of those kind of um, elements that didn't necessarily make it that easy to be a woman in that environment. 
Um, I think that at that time what it did was it allowed us to talk about feminism, to learn about it and to then actually try to put that into uh, our daily lives and the ways in which we were activists. We did lots of things at that time uh, to really try and uh, ensure that women had opportunities. Um, some of those things were successful, others not. Um, I was very involved in the abortion movement at that time because, of course, there were, abortion was illegal in Queensland. So women would have to actually go from uh, remote areas uh, to Tweed Heads. So it was just over the border and, you know, really supporting women to do that. At the same time, there were often uh, opportunities that were would just present themselves. Um, I'm a networker, so I talk to everybody. And so you would find someone and think about what they were doing and think, ah, I can perhaps ask for them to do something. And, you know, what I found at that time was there was an enormous amount of optimism that change was possible. I don't see that so much today. So in 76, when the Four Corners program on sexuality, homosexuality was uh, run and beamed across Australia, uh, there are lots of uh, things. I went to that and was, I mean, the, the YouTube video and was probably a really big turning point for the town because all of a sudden people had to talk about sexuality, which they hadn't really had to do before. Um, we had some very funny um, interludes, uh, but what it did was we'd always had a LGBTI group um, and it was kind of had fits and starts. We would run things and sometimes a lot of people would come, sometimes they didn't. But what that program did was it kind of legitimised that you could talk about sexuality or you could talk about sex and you could talk about all of the elements that went with that. We hadn't had that opportunity prior to that time. And I think that was a really big kind of push. We managed to get a whole range of other um, aspects of living uh, life in a mining town which was very kind of masculinist uh, and really to start to try and have things be different in the ways in which we dealt with each other. Um, you know, being able to get a women's refuge uh, operational, you know, a whole things that were happening in other places and had happened many years before were really kind of groundbreaking and new at that time. And then I moved from Manizer to Townsville to do my undergrad degree at James Cook and uh, was, you know, a large campus with a small number of students. And uh, I was really fortunate to be able to continue my feminist activism uh, with being there. And so uh, I guess I've, in some sense, when I look back in those early days, uh, I had opportunities presented themselves because the women that I was around were always looking for something else, you know, what else can we do? And I think that uh, sense of optimism and hope was really high. So that's been an important part of um, my life. And I'll talk more about the other sorts of questions. But I think though that time uh, really sustained me and actually gave me ideas and things that I still think about and, and do today to be able to actually uh, put forward what um, women's sex-based rights mean because when you talk about that sometimes people kind of glaze over or go oh my god what's she talking about or they just have that that blank I have no idea what you're actually talking about and um, I think you have to have that kind of ability to be able to pedal fast because sometimes when you're trying to talk to someone that you think does actually understand they're looking at you in total kind of um, stunned I have no idea where you're coming from. So I think I've had to do that. This is where I'm coming from speech a gazillion times. I probably will continue to do that. I've actually got it down quite well now, I think. <laughs> and I'm not surprised when uh, when that happens. But um, yes, I, I think that those early sort of parts of my life in learning about feminism and becoming a feminist and living my feminism uh, that has actually sort of stood me in good stead over many, many years. What made you first realise transgenderism is a threat to women's rights? I had worked uh, a lot in across many different organisations with people who are now called trans. Um, before that was really a, you know, a title that people took on. What I saw happen gradually over time and then all of a sudden seemed to really kind of have this avalanche 
was a change in language. And the language that was really being put up was so negative, but it was also really personalised. And so because I wouldn't, um, you know, bow to a lot of that, I was not seen as a real woman. And so I was told many times over, but you're not a real woman. Well, as you can imagine, that's not something that I will ever accept. Um, and it's, I think that was one of the things that really was uh, a kind of a gigantic wake-up call that this was actually war. This wasn't actually about gender at all. What it was about was this absolute, I am going to be on top of you and I'm going to raise you if I possibly can. So, I mean, I never make comments about people, uh, you know, the way they look or whatever. I might say to a friend, oh, you look great today or whatever, but I'm not going to go into, well, you don't look like a real woman or you look like this or that. And so I started getting quite a lot of that from people who I considered were a caricature of women. If someone has got more paint on their face and had all sorts of things, you know, added, subtracted, whatever. Um, and whilst I would never to that person's face say, I think you look like a, a caricature of a woman, they felt that they had every right to say whatever they wanted to, to say to me. So I think what happened with that is that I started to uh, really think a lot about how I was going to be able to respond to those things because I can't let that go past. If I don't make some comment to that, then I'm actually saying it's okay for you to, uh, to speak to me in that way. Um, many of the organisations that I was involved in, particularly in the union, um, and certainly to some extent in the ALP, um, I had people who were just making the most outrageously stupid comments. So, of course, I'd say, well, no, that's not quite how the world is. You know, this is what I, how I see it. But, of course, what happens is it becomes very personalised. Um, and so the current kind of, it went from being you don't understand, uh, you have no sort of, un, you know, you don't know anything, um, which I've had thrown at me for many years, to being I'm afraid of you because you don't know how to address me and you're going to misgender me. Well, um, Yes, right. Uh, so a lot of the sort of way in which language is used, it's hard to actually make a sensible comment back to them because what's being said to you is just so outrageously stupid. It's very hard to say, well, you know, there's a different point of view. And I was, I found that I was actually uh, trying to justify who it was. So now I don't justify at all. And I will respond to certain things and other things I will just ignore because there's no way of doing that. What's happened in the union world, I was the national convener for many years of the queer unions in tertiary education. We ran three conferences. We did a whole range of things within the union. Uh, and then, of course, once I spoke at the uh, Women's Guild event at Melbourne Uni, that, that kind of gave the platform for the transgender and their allies, many of whom are women and men that I know really well. Um, they took up a, a, a petition. It was on Facebook. They did, and it was on Twitter and all sorts of things. When that didn't kind of achieve what they wanted to achieve, um, they started that personal thing. I was getting sometimes 50 to 60 emails a day, uh, and as soon as I turned on my computer in the morning, there'd just be this absolute avalanche of vile um, stuff coming at me. Now, at work, uh, that would have been bad news, but I would have been able to cope with it. But remembering I was working at home. And so all of this violence was coming into my home. One night when things had, you know, I had had probably seven or eight days of really concerted uh, stuff happening, my partner just said, I'm going to throw your computer through the window because we don't act violently towards each other. And yet you were here for hours every day for this actual violence coming into our household, and I'm not going to accept that. So um, we then had to work out how we were going to deal with that. One of the things that happened uh, out of all of that, particularly from union perspective, and I'll talk about it in a bit more detail and further questions, was that I found that people were happy to be an ally if they could just say that to me privately, but they couldn't be an ally if they were actually going to be noticed or if anyone was going to know. 
So a woman who'd been on our branch committee some years ago was a, an IT whiz, and she said to me, send me the petition. I'm going to email every one of those people, and I want to know who they are and why they signed the petition. So we had a lot of discussion about whether that should happen. Anyway, I had looked through the petition. I'd seen a whole range of people. So people that I knew quite well, I actually emailed and said, what are you doing? Most of them then said, oh, someone asked me to sign it, so I just signed it. I didn't read it, uh, which is kind of a real cop-out. Uh, and others just said, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to end up in the same situation as you. And I said, but you were happy to sign something, uh, even though you don't actually agree with it. Uh, at the same time, I got hundreds of emails from people I have never met who said, we understand what's going on. We don't agree. Um, we want you to know that we support you and we think that the way in which this petition is happening is absolutely uh, ridiculous. My way of actually dealing with that was to then not stand for any of those positions. Um, so I wasn't I voted out. I just didn't stand. I didn't renominate. What's happened, of course, is that Kikut Court has ground to a, a halt because no one wants to be involved. The trans people who are involved are just eating each other and, you know, have no real respect for what's possible. Um, the union operates and this weekend coming uh, will be their uh, national council where the work of the union for the following year is actually decided upon by members. Um, and so they put in a motion, which we all put up motions for a National Council, which was the most despicable motion I think I've seen in a long time, using words like turf, cis, you know, really. Anyway, I was on the National Executive of the Union and I just said, if you put that up, if you do not amend that, um, this is to the senior leaders, uh, you will actually lose most of the female membership because people will not accept this. So um, they said, well, well, what should we do? I said, you have to talk to them. It has to come down because you put that up, then it will be open warfare. If you think it's warfare now, it'll be so much more than that. So I suppose that's actually uh, made me, really galvanised me in lots of ways because um, we have, um, I live in a small town, we have some transgender people here uh, and I talk to them, et cetera. Most of them are not in that really kind of crazy group, but and they don't quite understand what a lot of that's about. But it's that real feminising, and they're the feminine people, and you know I'm not. And I, I just get really kind of infuriated with that. But I guess the other thing that actually uh, has really, I think, put me on uh, on notice is the gender clinic in Wodonga. We have a gender clinic, and you know, the woman who's uh, heading that up, the trans person, um, they're taking these really young kids, uh, not a lot of information for parents. These children have to, you know, be able to accept. And so lots of young women who would have been butch lesbians um, are actually now becoming trans. Um, Helen and I were actually on a panel uh, and were really castigated by the people from the gender clinic. Um, which we gave probably as good as what we got, but it was a really unpleasant and difficult uh, situation. And I guess I think that what it really highlighted to me was people have a mantra because they don't have their own ideas about what's happening. They're actually following what this gender mob are talking about. And it's cringeworthy. There's no debate. There's no critique. There's no real understanding of what it's about. So... I think for me, that's been really difficult. And I guess that's what spurs me on. Thanks. Is there an area of activity in which you focus your efforts to resist gender identity ideology? And where is that taking you? That's one of my ongoing things of being in paid employment um, and, you know, really trying to make sure that <clears throat> my students understand that gender and sexuality are different. Um, and trying to be careful not to have any student placed in the gender clinic. I wasn't so fortunate last year. The young student who went there um, completely had all the language in the whole thing and really didn't have a clue what it was about. Uh, so I think being able to speak up uh, in that sense and having that platform with students is really uh, an important part. 
Also, I'm convener uh, of Coalition of Activist Lesbians, uh, of which Lavender was convener for many, many years. Um, and I think that that work is really important because we actually have um, a seat on the um, United Nations. Um, and I think that there is no other you know, organisation with lesbian in the title. Uh, I think that's a really important one. We're putting quite a lot of effort into that and really trying to make sure that we're able to um, have a voice. Sometimes that's more successful than others. Um, but I think also we have had a bit of a burst of, of energy, some new people to the committee. Um, we have a website. So we're hopeful that by having a website that we will then start to attract um, other women who want to actually uh, talk about the issues and want to, you know, really kind of think about what all of the, the aspects of um, gender identity look like and how that's actually been used against us. So I think those things are always important. Talking to people in town where I live, um, I think that's also having that physical visible visibility where, uh, you know, people uh, sometimes ask questions, um, sometimes talk about their children because they're worried about what their kids are wanting to be and just always offering that sort of um, opposing view that you don't have to be a trans. Um, I think it um, that when I talked about the use of language with some of the gender ideologues, um, I'm seen as having been bisexual. I think I've been bisexual in my life. <laughs> I started life out as being heterosexual. I didn't know anything else. Um, and I certainly was married to a man for a number of years. I've been married to a woman, if you kind of think about things in those terms, uh, for, for 32 years. So I think I actually know who I am. Um, <laughs> it's not something I'm going to grow out of, um, much to my mother's uh, disappointment. Um, but I think always being able to have that conversation and talking about what happens. My, my work with coal is absolutely uh, core because I feel what it does is that it nourishes me because I work in, uh, you know, a university where, you know, gender is all around me and all of the, the nonsense. Um, lots of people who will have private conversations with me won't do anything publicly, won't join with you to do things because they're too afraid that they would then be um, identified. That has, um, you know, a whole range of, of um, uh, things that happen and take up uh, a lot of your energy, but I think that's where majority of my energy is actually being focused so that lesbians are actually uh, able to meet uh, as a group um, and be able to um, still survive in society. Can you tell us a bit about the opposition you've met and how it's impacting you? I've had opposition from many different uh, fronts and I, I don't tend to, uh, I mean, at the end of last year, I was pretty much on my knees with the, the level of um, violence towards me, but I got over that and I guess I'm not putting myself in the same situation uh, in that uh, I've sort of stood aside from things I've picked up to do some other um, sort of work that I'm interested in. But I think opposition has also changed. Uh, you know, whereas when I was much younger, when I lived in Van Isa and Townsville and, you know, other sorts of areas, um, the discrimination against women and certainly against lesbians um, was much more overt, but in a more kind of polite sort of way. Well, we don't talk about that here or we don't have people like you. What has happened over time, of course, is that that has become uh, now people feel like they can actually, uh, you know, make a formal complaint about you. So I'm not surprised at people who don't stand up. I mean, I, if everyone stood up, we would have a very different um, outcome. But, you know, sometimes the level of um, personalising of what is really a relatively minor issue uh, becomes really major. Students often do that. Um, people around you do that. And it would be easy to just kind of fade into the background, but that's not the way in which I operate. Um, some days are hard, some days are harder. And I guess I've had to accept that you know, my academic career is, is 
what I make it, not what the uh, Academy makes it. Um, I think I'm probably one of the long-term members. I think I've been 26 years on the top of level B. Um, and of course, I'm not discriminated against. I work on a, you know, and have done over many years work on uh, regional campuses because I like uh, living in a regional area. Um, but that has its own set of, um, you know, things against you. So I think if you uh, speak out and you actually do things, there's always going to be a cost to that. And I'm just of the view, uh, I'm going to do the things that um, I feel like I can make some impact with. Uh, I'm not necessarily going to, uh, you know, the people that I work with, say, in coal, et cetera, we have different ideas, but we're able to work well together. Um, I have other kind of pockets of people, particularly political, that I work with, and I just have to keep doing that work because I think I feel strongly about it. Um, and I have to be available for younger people who actually want to ask those questions. Um, and I think if I continue to do that, then eventually, I mean, you sow lots of seeds, you never see that seed necessarily uh, produce, but you know that at some stage that actually has, a, has an impact on uh, that person's life. So from my perspective, uh, I'll continue to do that because I think that's who I am and that's the only way that I'm going to be able to make that kind of lasting change. And I suppose, you know, I'm always up for a new challenge. So um, I get involved in different things and that by doing that, it actually, people often say to me, oh, I've never met a lesbian. Well, there you go. That's a really big, interesting <laughs> event. So when you start talking about trans and things like that, um, I've had lots of conversations with uh, local people who after a couple of drinks will come and say, look, I want to talk to you about this. So then, you know, an hour later, you've had this long conversation. Many of them are trying to figure it out. They they are, they want to know, but they don't know how to. They're not going to go and buy a book and read it. They're not necessarily going to listen to things on YouTube or anywhere else. Um, but if we can have a conversation, then that's the most important thing for me. Um, and I guess that's what I will always continue to do. What are the next steps for you? Something that has become very apparent, um, which I find highly amusing, irritating, but highly amusing. I'm five foot two, I'm over 70, and uh, all of a sudden there's all these trans people and other allies who are afraid of me. And so I've never experienced anyone being afraid of me. Um, so that's kind of a new experience. Uh, and so I have a situation where I'm on a committee, branch committee through the union, uh, and two people won't come to a meeting because uh, they don't feel safe around me. So I'm this kind of, I'm a pariah in a very different kind of way. Well, that's kind of a new experience for me. Um, so I think probably for me, next steps is to uh, maintain a sense of humour. I think if you don't have a sense of humour, you're pretty nutty and all this nonsense. Um, just to keep on doing what I'm doing, to continue the activism work with groups that I know uh, want to be activists and are not going to accept um, the rhetoric because I think the rhetoric is just so um, misguided. Um, I think those things are really important to me and to always... Uh, stand up to uh, someone who calls themselves a trans woman because I'm not going to be dictated to by a man in a dress. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, my final comment. Tonight has been fantastic. Um, I think, you know, Chris Sitka asked me to be involved in the panel for the Women's Guild. I was really thrilled to be able to do that. There are lots of things happening where we're with like-minded uh, people and I need that to, to nourish me, uh, to be able to deal with all the other stuff that goes on. And uh, if, to everybody, thank you for being here. I've been looking at your comments in the chat. Um, I think we, you know, there are enough of us. Um, I don't think you have to have really large numbers to be able to make change. You have to be dogged. 
and just gather those people around you that are going to continue with whatever the work is. And I think we, we're probably reaching a point where we just our sheer sort of um, continuance and not, not giving up will eventually make a change. Now, I'm not sure what that change will look like, but um, for me, if that change could mean that the gender clinic nonsense is halted because that's actually happening overseas, I would be very happy about that because that would mean young people who, uh, you know, their kind of whim is actually being beaten up and I think they're getting into doing things that will have absolutely no um you know sort of will have big implications for them in the future so i think that's what i um they're my kind of comments and just that you know if you have groups like this where you can actually talk and discuss things you know i i always learn from that because there's always someone with a slightly different view of what's happened and that then feeds me to be thinking differently so thank you to everybody michelle would you like to introduce yourself a little further and please give us some details of your involvement in advocating for women's sex-based rights? Ko Michelle Uriaro, taku ingoa, ko Ngati Henepare, raua ko Ngati Mahu, ngō hapu o te iwi o Ngati Kahungunu. Um, and I also am coming to you from uh, Gundijmara country and I pay my respects to their tipuna, past, present and emerging. Um, so my involvement um, in advocating for women's sex-based rights is actually fairly recent. Uh, as Janet was saying in the introduction, I've only um, come to, uh, you know, advocating for women's sex-based rights because of a uni course that I took a few years ago. <laughs> um, so this is all fairly new to me. Um, as a result, I've done lots of reading and lots of listening to podcasts and, you know, uh, joining live streams like this so that I could, you know, educate myself. Um, but I started in earnest in 2019 with the creation of uh, Women's Action Group Southwest Victoria uh, with uh, my co-founders Lisa Owen and Sonia Stoneman. Um, and the main purpose of uh, Women's Action Group was to address uh, the self-ID legislation in Victoria, which ended up passing anyway. Um, but, you know, we did all the kind of grass work, uh, grassroots, you know, groundwork that you normally would do, uh, writing to, you know, every single Victorian MP, uh, getting a lot of, you know, no responses from Labour and from the Greens. Um, we did meet up with a few MPs, but they were, you know, they're all Conservative. Uh, which was good, I guess, in a way. Um, but we also joined forces with uh, Victorian Women's Guild, which at the time was a new group as well, um, in this type of groundwork. Um, the other thing we did too was we held, because gender identity was, identity was well, to us at least, a new movement, um, we weren't really sure um, how people in our local area uh, you know, if they thought about it or if they knew what was going on. You know, we live in a regional area. So um, so we held meetings at Lisa's beautiful home. Thank you to Lisa for that. Uh, with local people, you know, decision makers and, and not decision makers, just to, you know, discuss our concerns and to talk it through. Um, and the other things we've done, we've, um, we've attempted to, uh, you know, have the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, um, you know, conduct a national inquiry into gender dysphoria. I think everyone knows about this anyway, um, which of course was unsuccessful. Uh, we've created a petition to the Minister for Women and um, various ministers for science. I think we're on the third one now. I've lost count. Um, for uh, and that petition, sorry, was for um, basically saying that you know the Australia's leading institute for science has redefined the word woman not man, they haven't redefined the word man. Um, anyway, so we've still had no response <laughs> from that petition uh, to this day. Um, you know, just that kind of work, basically. Um, we've also got our Facebook page. And the reason for that was so that we could obviously, you know, connect and network with other feminists and women's groups as well around this issue. Um, I also used to previously sit 
in on the monthly WHRC Australia and New Zealand meetings, but I resigned at the start of the year, uh, citing motherhood and homeschooling duties as my excuse. So, uh, gosh, that was a big fat lie. <laughs> so I apologise for that. Um, but in reality, I just could not ignore the need uh, for a Māori presence um, in this fight. So I'm also proud to say that I am a founding member of Manawahine Kōrero. Uh, the translation of that, by the way, means sovereign women speak. Uh, we're about two, two months old, something like that. And uh, my fellow founding member, Diane, presented in last month's panel. Um, so Manawahine Kōrero started through my membership with another New Zealand feminist group called Women's Liberation Aotearoa, so shout out to them. So the primary focus of Manawahine Kōrero is uh, the protection and the preservation of the integrity of our Māori tanga, so our culture, um, which by default is also the protection of wahine, which is women, and tamariki, which is children. Um, and this is all in direct response to, you know, the gender identity, social contagion and relevant legislation currently before New Zealand Parliament, which is uh, Sex Self-ID and Conversion Practices Prohibition Bill. It, to us, it seems that hapu, which is, you know, sub-tribes of Māori, are largely unaware of uh, the gender identity, social contagion, um, and the impacts of these proposed bills uh, and the threat that they pose to our culture. Um, our belief is that both the Sex Self ID and the Conversion Practices Prohibition Bills are in breach of Hea Whakaputanga, which is uh, New Zealand's Declaration of Independence, which by the way covers both Māori and Pākehā, um, and Te Tiriti o Waitangi, which is our Treaty of Waitangi, and the United Nations Declaration, on the rights of Indigenous peoples. Uh, so Manawahine Kōrero have made written submissions on both these proposed legislative changes. Uh, and we've also put in a request to make all submissions, but we're yet to receive a date and time for that. So we do have a Facebook page. It's a private one, it's by invitation only. And the reason for that is, uh, is basically matters of cultural preservation. You know, much like Wahine, uh, we do need our own space. Um, we also have a YouTube channel, you know, check us out. Um, it's under Marawahine Kōrero. And, you know, basically, you know, our efforts are aimed at raising awareness among hapu, among, you know, the sub-tribes to get the conversation started. Um, but by the same token, we're not an educational group, so we, we try to make that distinction, okay? Um but the other thing too, we don't pretend to speak for all Māori, and it's really important to understand that, because at the minute, uh, gender identity extremists actually are doing that, okay, um, which we obviously object to. And an example of that is an organisation uh, called Rainbow Midwives Alliance, who people here have probably already heard of. They petitioned a witch hunt against a woman by the name of Millie Hill last month. Um, now, the woman behind Rainbow Midwives Alliance is, she's from Durham, she's not Māori, yet she spoke um, as if she represented all Māori. And she used our culture and our treaty as an excuse to endorse her witch hunt. And she also held up academia as an authority on Māori tanga, which is completely false. So, uh, hapu have never used te tiriti to de-platform a wahine from her mahi or her work. Um, you know, it's a flippant and fraudulent use of te tiriti o waitangi. Now, our tikanga, our culture, is preserved and handed down by our kaumatua, our elders, and our rangatira, our leaders. Uh, actually, it's academia that consult um, our kaumatua and our rangatira about our culture, not the other way around. And that's because academia is not a Māori institution, which I'm pretty sure is blatantly obvious. Um, anyway, in closing, uh, we just want to make it clear that, you know, we don't have any word native to te reo, to our language, that translates to the words gender or transgender. None at all. Um, our culture has always understood and respected the biological reality of wahine and tāne. Um, in te ao Māori, there is a synergy between wahine and land, and that without one or the other or both, 
uh, man cannot survive. In other words, you know, he wahine, he whenua, kaura te tangata. Uh, in other words, only wahine can bring forth life. Kia ora. What made you first realise that transgenderism is a threat to women's rights? I first realised um, what was happening with transgenderism um, as a result of a university course that I took um, at the end of 2017. Um, or rather I enrolled at the end of 2017. Um, so the university course was about Indigenous Australia um, and at first it was fabulous, I loved it because that's the type of stuff that I'm really into but by the second assignment uh, we'd been given, oh, I thought it was a joke, <laughs> we'd been given the gender-bred person resource material for our second assignment and it was clear, I felt like I'd been living under a rock because Everyone else seemed to be like totally on board. They knew what was going on. I was like none the wiser. Um, plus, I think I was like one of the older students there anyway. Um, and for me, I thought it was actually incongruent to an Indigenous perspective, right? Because there's women's business and all that type of stuff. Like, I'm pretty sure I just assumed that everyone knew that. Um, but like Virginia said too, I also noticed the change in language you know, cis woman, uh, cis lesbian, um, uh, you know, calling women womb havers, all that type of stuff. Also the erasure of wahine um, or woman um, from pretty much everything. Um, and also like medically experimenting on children. Like to me, it all sounded like colonization. You know, that's what a lot of indigenous peoples have gone through, you know, around the world. So, um, and I know that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you're a woman first and, you know, it, it, then your culture second. But the reality is I've always been my culture first. You know, that's just something I can't, I was raised in my culture. So I'll always look at my, at the world around me. It's called Tao Māori. You know, I'll always look at the world around me in that, in that manner first. And then, you know, um, and then through, uh, you know, being a woman. So I was told to educate myself, which is what I did. And, um, and yeah, so here I am. The other thing too, though, that I've never really talked about publicly is that I did spend um, half of my childhood uh, in a cult. So um, on my mother's side of my family, we, um, as a child, or I was a child, um, we went into a cult in New Zealand. Um, probably the most traumatic experience of my life. Uh, so I'm well aware of what mantras do, um, you know, trans woman or woman, all that type of stuff. Um, and, you know, the brainwashing techniques as well. For me, this transgender movement <laughs> is, you know, it's soaking with all this type of, you know, mind, uh, mind control, uh, you know. And, and also, like, you know, everyone... It's almost as if they all know, but they don't really think about it. You know, that was the other thing that struck me too is because I recognise it as well, because when you're in a cold, when you're brainwashed, you don't even question, you don't challenge, you don't even think to question or challenge. So in a way, I do have, you know, empathy for the young, you know, the rangatahi or the young, or the young children as well, you know, the young people, young adults, who are swept up by all of this stuff because, you know, I know what it's like. But it took me years of therapy to get over it, you know, to, to actually work through through the motions. You know, and I'm 50 years of age now. So, um, so yeah, so so that's how I first realised uh, that transgender, tra sorry, transgenderism was a threat to women's rights. Thank you. Is there an area of activity where you're focusing your efforts to resist gender identity ideology? And where's it taking you? At the minute, uh, there is an area and uh, I'm currently focusing my efforts with Marawahine Kōrero and that's purely because at the minute, those bills that I spoke about earlier are currently before New Zealand Parliament. Um, and also to, you know, trying to encourage um, hapu, you know, sub-tribes to talk about uh, this gender identity ideology. Um, so where has it taken me? So I've um, <laughs> been doing a lot of reading and um, research into our uh, founding documents, which is here, Whakaputanga uh, and Te Tiriti o Waitangi. 
um, and the terms agreed to in both those founding documents for New Zealand, um, who signed, who didn't, you know, and all the associated history. Really quite interesting, actually. Um, the other thing, actually, is that it's uh, encouraged me to learn more about the history of my own whakapapa, so my own genealogy. Um, probably no surprise to anyone listening tonight that my um, found out my hapu was actually quite politically active. Um, and Mairanga Tira was one of the last of the great chiefs. Um, and our pa is actually named after Sir James Carroll, who was the first Māori acting prime minister. Um, and the other place it's led me, I never thought I'd ever say this, is that I am on YouTube, like I said before, you know, amusing, amusing to my teenage child, of course, but I'm not a YouTuber, just make that clear. <laughs> um, and I think I can't, I can't thank all the Pākehā uh, feminists and women who have um, informed me, who have taught me about uh, feminism, I knew nothing about feminism, really, I'll be honest. Um, so, you know, from the bottom of my heart, I really thank everyone um, for helping me, for educating me. Um, and I, you know, I keep incredible company uh, with the Wahine and Women's Action Group and, you know, here, WHRC, uh, Women's Liberation Aotearoa, and of course, Manawahine Korero. Um, so, yeah. Can you tell us a little about the opposition you've met and how this is impacting on you personally? So far, or well, opposition that I'm aware of, by the way, probably a lot going on behind my back. <laughs> I don't know. But what I'm aware of, um, it's mostly been fringe. So, you know, people that really aren't an important part or a large part of my life. Um, may, and I'd say that's because I'm a homeschooling parent. So my lifestyle is very, you know, uh, localised, if that makes sense, you know, to um, around what my child and I do. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis um, and the homeschooling parents that I associate with they are all on board which is so good you know so um, by the way there are homeschooling families that aren't of course but you know um, the ones that I associate with are um, so yeah so I don't I haven't really you know come across any opposition obviously you know I've had the the rape threats, the death threats online and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm an old woman. I don't really let that get to me. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. We've all had them, you know. Um, and I never take them seriously anyway. Um, I and Again, regard, regarding Manawahine Korero, um, I'll be interested to see what kind of kickback we get um, from, you know, from Māori, certain Māori back home, particularly those that are currently sitting in, you know, Parliament. Um, but yeah, that's yet to reveal itself. So for the most part, I've actually received more support. To be honest with you, I'm just more concerned if my whānau, if my family went on board, that would probably, you know, make me a bit more ill at ease. But, you know, they're supportive. What are the next steps for you in your organisations? And do you have any suggestions for the Women's Human Rights Campaign or for attendees? We don't really know yet. It depends on the outcome uh, for Manawahine Korero, at least, um, and Women's Liberation Aotearoa, I guess, you know, uh, what happens with these bills that are currently before uh, New Zealand Parliament, whether they'll pass or, you know, if they'll pass, whether any of the amendments suggested will be taken on board, don't know. Um, as far as Manawahine Korero is concerned, though, we have made a direct claim in both our submissions that these bills um, are in breach, in direct breach of Her Whakaputanga and Te Tiriti o Waitangi. So, yeah, no, we'd have to step up to the plate on that, I guess, <laughs> at some stage. So, um, so yeah, so watch the space. Um, suggestions. I don't really have any suggestions other than, you know, just, I, I guess, just keep keep up with what everyone is doing. Um like I'd like to say, um, the one thing that I'm, you know, like I said, one of the things that I noticed uh, about the transgender movement was the change in language. Um, and, of course, that connection that I made back to, uh, you know, the colonisation of uh, my people. You know, language is very important, obviously. I'm sure everyone knows that. And, you know, for me, this is just me personally, there's no such thing as trans woman trans there's no such thing as transgender you know there's no such thing men are men woman are woman that's it you know uh 
men who think that they're women are men still. So, you know, I think if we can, you know, at least try and, you know, I guess just look at the language that we ourselves use uh, in this fight, you know, I think that might be a good thing. Um, look, but other than that, I've really enjoyed myself tonight listening to um, both Virginia and Caroline. Thank you so much for your input. Um, but yeah, so on that note, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Caroline, if I could go to you, can you please introduce yourself a bit further and give us some details of your involvement in advocating for women's sex-based rights? Uh, yes, I'm a, a lecturer at RMIT University in Melbourne, uh, and most of the time I've been involved in advocacy against the sex industry or in support of uh, women surviving the sex industry. I've done some of this work through the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women Australia, but also through uh, organisations in Japan, as, as Janet mentioned, and through research and public speaking. Um, funnily enough, I think this background in anti-sex industry activity, in a, political activity in Australia, um, made me a little bit aware of how transgenderism might play out as it came in, as I saw it coming to Australia in policy and law. And I know Anna Kerr made some really good comments on this topic, I think, uh, a few months ago, um, where we find this situation where once you start to, and many, I know many of us here have, but you start to look into various spheres of legislation and policy in Australia and realise they are fundamentally misogynistic and slightly crazy in their drafting. And this was the case for prostitution and trafficking legislation in Australia too. Uh, we've got all sorts of crazy things um, put into legislation in the States. Uh, one, one provision I think allows sex buyers to uh, launch civil cases against prostituted women for not delivering service or something like that. That's just one of many crazy um, outcomes. So I think sort of knowing about this crazy policy legislative, legislative environment that's possible in Australia, and then also doing the kind of lobbying of politicians and talking to public servants about the prostitution issue, and having them either be hostile, or just uh, of course dismissive, or completely ignore us, um, even when we sort of made the most lightweight, reasonable, what we thought were reasonable and research based kind of suggestions to them to receive that kind of reaction from elected officials. So, and obviously I know all of us here now know, and we're probably already aware in the same way uh, that once we saw transgenderism come in and the policy objectives of that social movement and to see our politicians and public servants and institutional officials of various kinds, universities as well, uh, be so gullible and so quickly taken over. I think um, Annika, when she was talking about this, said something about the disappointment of finding out that your fellow citizens are really that dumb. And it's true that that kind of feeling um, was sort of reiterated with the, once I started to get into the transgender uh, critique as well, uh, but also just to see that the really weak base of democracy that exists in Australia, that people are so quick and um, so easily uh, sort of succumb to sort of really reactionary demands from a, a social movement that had no legitimate basis in Australia whatsoever. But anyway, that's, um, so yes, I came from the anti-prostitution movement and then uh, to the um, critique on uh, the, the transgenderist claims in policy and legislation as well. Um, Obviously, I uh, studied under Sheila Jeffries at the University of Melbourne, so ended up hearing over many years uh, developments overseas that were happening in relation to these policies, and then saw that come to Australia, and then um, was alerted to the problems that that then were causing in various realms. I think my background uh, specifically, and many others as well, um, was one of coming facing up to this uh, problem of uh, transgenderist aims in Australia as like attacking very directly women's political participation uh, in various ways. So I saw that transgenderism ended up stopping a lot of us who were attempting to campaign against the sex industry and in support of survivors that the transgenderist sort of critique was used against us to stop talking on that point as well. So I think this kind of um, article six of the declaration what made you first realise transgenderism is a threat to women's rights? I was on the board of a prostitution outreach organisation when a discussion arose about a so-called trans, trans woman uh, wanting to attend a camp away that we'd organised through the organisation for survivors, two and three nights I think it was, um, and 
so I kind of naively went ahead and you know poo-pooed that idea and then the the rest of the board member and it was a reasonably large board all women uh instantly uh clamped down on that and took the opposing view that it was quite fine uh, and I don't think they even ended up putting in any safeguards at all um so it's fine to, to have opinions overridden on boards of course it happens all the time but I think it was yeah yet again this thing that Annika referred to a while ago about being shocked at um, the reaction of people, particularly on this board, given that it was an anti-prostitution organisation, um, that I had different expectations of them, that we were in no position to wanting to be sucking up to men or indulging men's, um, you know, preferences, but nonetheless, they instantly saw no reason to object to that, even though the women that he would be with were, you know, some of the most vulnerable women on earth. Um, yeah, so that was one sort of incident that I remember quite in my mind. Um, and then uh, there's a few women um, participating today, thanks to Chris Sitka and Lavender, but there's many, many others as well um, that talked to me over many years while I was in Melbourne, and particularly when I was um, in my 20s, um, about what happened with Sappho's party in South Australia and lesbian space in Sydney. I wasn't part of any of those uh, initiatives, but um, yeah, women like Chris Sitka were really kind and patient over many years in uh, telling, you know, talking to me and other women my generation um, about what happened with those. And so I think I was alerted quite early on, thanks to, you know, um, you know, all the sisters um, telling me about uh, the kinds of problems that um, trans activists had been waging, uh, particularly against lesbians from the 1990s. Um, and then, yeah, as I mentioned, I was a PhD student under Sheila Jeffries, and so I got to hear about overseas developments in transgenderism, which happened earlier than Australia, as we all know. Um, and I think, yeah, we were lucky to have Sheila Jeffries in Melbourne, building a base of um, sort of feminists against both prostitution and transgenderism. Uh, we ended up in Victoria, at least, being completely <laughs> unsuccessful on both fronts, at, as it stands at the moment. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, I think maybe in Melbourne we've got a bit of a stronger base uh, of activists perhaps still um, in relation to those two issues so we just have to be uh, on the standby and watching and waiting for any um, yeah change in the political winds where we can you know start to bring forth you know our political viewpoint but yeah at the moment it's still sort of history starting out with this issue and continuing to the current day it's still on the same trajectory because we haven't made any particular gains I don't think yet anyway but thanks yeah is there an area of activity in which you focus your efforts to resist gender identity ideology and where's that taking you? In Japan, so these last couple of years, um, yeah, I've obviously been working with individuals and groups here, uh, not just through internet circles, but also in real life to a limited extent at least. Um, yeah, and it's quite amazing in Japan. So as far as I could see, there didn't really exist um, radical feminist ideas that circulated in any concrete form amongst groups of feminists in Japan. Of course, there was feminism, uh, but I didn't get any sense over many, many, you've been coming to Japan for 20 years, um, that radical feminism kind of really did exist at any great extent. Um, but now that transgenderism's sort of been brought down by the imperialist bloody Western NGOs into the country, um, and, and also because of social media and seeing sort of uh, their sisters abroad um, report things that are happening in their countries. Yeah, there seems to be yeah, just an explosion of sort of quite proper radical feminism, at least online, um, which has sort of been a huge shock. And but it's ended up uh, being a pool that's yeah these these groups and these women, mainly it's sisters working on the ground in Japan, that have been able to tap into to start to build um, yeah groups. And finally, we've got an NGO now just the last week that's actually formed in a concrete sense on the ground uh, and there's a couple of women in that that are actually using their real names and showing their faces which is a very big deal in Japan so that's a huge um, achievement. Uh, I think a year and a half ago I was asked by a committee, a gender committee of the Japan Communist Party uh, to brief them on the transgender issue which was kind of a funny <laughs> um, invitation to receive. Obviously the Japan Communist Party uh, attracts very small percentages of electoral support, but they tend to be a sort of a standard bearer for the kinds of issues that the Japanese left will pursue overall. They they sort of occupy the high ground. Um, yeah, so I was able to do that. I mean, why would they invite a foreigner? Who cares? It's, I think that was only because at that stage, at least a year and a half or a little bit longer ago, um, there were still no sort of Japanese feminists on the ground showing their faces and using their names. 
Um, so it was a safe bet to go with a foreigner who had sort of the same knowledge that those groups that they'd been seeing on social media had, and they sort of felt like they had to become, a, you know, educate themselves, as Michelle's saying, on the issue. So that, you know, I was happy. They were hostile to me, of course, um, but nonetheless, I'm, that's not a criticism because at least they, um, you know, were briefed on, on, you know, did reach out to be briefed on the issue, which is a lot better than nearly 100% of Western um, sort of leftist organisations. So that's, that was great. At the moment, it's um, attempting to liaise with local feminists, sort of general, you know, everyday feminists on the ground. Uh, but probably just because, you know, obviously I'm, I'm in academia and so and academia, particularly in East Asian countries, of course, has a big influence over the population. Um, and so there's, of course, uh, TRA academics that have come out in Japan really strongly here, and much less so academic, gender critical academics. Um, but being kind of the odd foreigner in Tokyo that's kind of involved in this issue, I think I've become a bit of a clearinghouse type person where these sort of academics who are thinking of maybe, you know, taking some sort of small stand and good on them, it's hard, it's a hard society to do that in, um, tend to sort of come to me to get connected with either the local groups that are organising or with other academics who might um, be aligned in some way. So yeah, I think inadvertently I'm doing stuff, but it's definitely sisters on the ground here that, that are doing, yeah, really taking the charge. So that's great. Can you tell us a bit about the opposition you've met and how that's impacted on you personally? The usual um, members of the random members of the public. And in fact, academics in Japan ring RMIT to try and lodge a complaint about my very existence. Um, they're not those sort of silly um, complaints are not too bad, except that the uh, probably in Virginia's case as well, the upper level managers, sort of or the middle level managers, um, seem to take them too, you know, far more seriously than they really should. But once you get past that, uh, the other annoying incident I had was with a couple of liberal feminist colleagues who whipped up opposition to me sitting on a, a sort of a public speaking panel on an upcoming. Um, conversion therapy bill in Victoria, which ended up passing. And the panel was organised by the Australian Christian Lobby. Um, I deliberately and actively uh, collaborate with that organisation um, on our issues. And yeah, and so the, the colleagues sort of put around a, a petition in the department and, you know, uh, they went to a tabloid, one of the gay media uh, tabloid newspapers and talked to them about me and that kind of thing. So it's not, I mean, that, you know, these, you know, these low level uh, colleagues aren't worth worrying about, except that then I tried to obviously get redressed through my department about their, you know, inappropriate behaviour uh, and couldn't get any. So it's kind of, again, so I keep coming back to the same thing, this sort of disappointment and shock at the level of, um, you know, inability in Australia to, prop, you know, to follow any type of institutional standards, you know, about speech and democracy and freedom and all those kind of things like the people appear to have you know been completely ignorant about you know discrimination on the basis of political beliefs as being you know an anti-liberal type value i mean if they, they hold on to liberal values you know what many of us you know hold on to radical values but they, they're the ones holding on to liberal values and they don't even you know have know what they are let alone have the ability to follow them but anyway that's my rant against that little incident that happened nothing like virginia's experience though um and then, yeah, as I mentioned before, um, uh, getting cancelled when I'm due to speak or to hold conferences uh, on the prostitution issue and the sexual exploitation issue, uh, we had a conference kind of sort of invaded or sort of interrupted by activists uh, that was wholly and solely about sexual exploitation, uh, but a lot of the rhetoric that was used in order to justify that um, interruption was this, the transgender stuff. Um, so yeah, as I mean, many many women here I know have already experienced it, where they sort of sh they attempt to shut you down on other radical goals and political campaigning on the basis of this supposedly higher moral ground of um, uh, you know uh, calling us transphobes and things like that. Um, and then oh, then just one other incident uh, that happened was in 2015. I managed to get onto the. ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's uh, website, just to, effectively just a blog piece, but it was an opinion piece on uh, transgenderism. That was back in 2015. And then I think I went back to the same editor maybe two or three years later, just to have had another small piece. I mean, these are really incidental, tiny kind of corner of the internet type blog pieces, but 
went back to the editor to ask whether, whether they wanted this second piece about a different issue, something that had come up topically in the media um, to comment on. And he point blank said that the ABC was not accepting any pieces with our viewpoint on that issue. Um, he was apologetic about it, it wasn't coming from him. Um, but that, I mean, that was pretty shocking. Uh, that's Australia's national broadcaster telling someone, you know, member of the public that they're not uh, broadcasting our opinion. And yeah, as I know sisters here, you know, more than know that like the betrayal that we've experienced in Australia, and I know New Zealand has as well with the media, all media outlets and um, the academia. I mean, they, I hope one day we have a national reckoning over these things because they have really let down women and children. I hope one day they'll be held responsible. But yeah, that was my experience. Thanks, Janet. What are the next steps for you? I have a, uh, a family member who happens uh, to be right in the field in Australia of uh, child and youth psychiatry. Um, and she tells me that parents are fully bullied uh, when they come into hospitals when their um, children have been, you know, taken in for whatever sort of taken in with mental health issues or, you know, somehow gotten a connection with the hospitals. And uh, apparently, yeah, any any objection raised by parents in any respect whatsoever, you know, they don't want to use the new names that the, the children have decided upon or something like that. Um, apparently hospital staff are treating them absolutely terribly. Um, I suppose and looking, and this is this is way outside of my field, but just looking at, you know, little bits and pieces that have come through from America as well, that it seems to be that there's some resistance sort of rising up through mothers and through parents in the schools. Um, and maybe that's a sort of a, a population to be mobilised in Australia as well. Um, because they're really getting it in the neck uh, in terms of what schools are sort of attempting to pass by them and sort of indoctrinate their children with. So maybe that's a, an avenue. But um, yeah, I tend to think that the sort of the campaign to win the hearts and minds in general and that not, not, I mean, Virginia's suggestions for talking to local people, I think was absolutely perfect. But I don't know, I feel maybe as a movement, a resistance movement, we're weak and we're small, even though, of course, we're wonderful. Um, I think the generalist kind of push to win hearts and minds via social media or anything like that, that's great. But I think also concentrating on specific populations that are really getting it at the front line. Of course, lesbians get it beyond anyone, but parents too. Uh, yeah, from what I'm hearing, it's not good uh, in terms of how they're having to put up with a lot. So yeah, any I suppose any intervention we can make into schools and parents associations, that kind of thing would, would be great. But yeah, I'm, I'm not really the person involved in that sphere. But yeah, thanks to everyone who is though. Thanks a lot.